Well, in his first sermon at Pentecost, right, the first Christian sermon ever preached, Peter has already covered a lot of ground. He's unpacked the significance of the descent of the Spirit in tongues of fire, as foreseen by the prophet Joel. It means, he says, that the last days and the great and terrible day of the Lord are at hand, and that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. He declared that the life of Jesus was attested to by God, that in his death he was delivered up by God, and that in accordance with the scripture he's been raised and exalted to the right hand. And he says, therefore, here's the conclusion, let all the house of Israel know that God has made this Jesus both Lord and Christ. This Jesus, he says to the crowd, remember, whom you crucified. So there's a provocative sort of cutting edge to this preaching. And in our text this morning, the crowd, the assembled audience for this sermon, they finally react. They finally react. And Peter instructs them, and by instructing them, of course, he instructs us, in what an appropriate response to the apostolic gospel looks like. So we're going to make nine points. I know, I know. Breaks every rule of preaching. Look, all my sermons have nine points. Sometimes I only tell you they have three points. Most of them have 29 points, I know. But it's a dense passage, and I wanted to unpack it carefully. Almost every phrase is important, and a lot of what we think about salvation and the sacraments is bound up with a text like this. So they're there on the back of your insert. Uh, They'll be quick. So the first one's the introduction. They heard Peter's sermon. We're told they're cut to the heart. The word of God and the apostolic preaching is like a two-edged sword. It's piercing into the depths of their being. They were deeply convicted. They were wounded, even traumatized in their conscience. They have now realized this. Now try and wrap your head around this. They have realized that as the chosen people of God, they have delivered over and crucified the long-expected Messiah. That's what's dawning on the crowd. There could not be any greater guilt than this. We should all feel a certain kinship with them, with this guilt, when we recognize our own sins are the cause of Christ being delivered up. So they're cut deep to the heart, and they say to Peter and the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? What shall we do? There's a a certain desperation and anxiety. And because, precisely because, God has raised this crucified Jesus, making him Lord in Christ, there is, in fact, good news. Bright hope for these and for all grief-stricken, guilty sinners. Right? For those who know self-despair, 
For those who've come to the end of themselves. The place of self-despair is the place the gospel takes root. The place of an honest acknowledgement of the depth of our guilt, that's the place the gospel plays. That's the place the crowd is in. And there's, so there's good news. So Peter's now going to give them this brief sketch of what conversion and what initiation into the Christian faith looks like. That's why this passage is so important. Now, we should not get too hung up on the exact order of things here. Because throughout Acts, stuff happens in differing sequences. This is part of why the book of Acts can be a bit of a tangle at points. Like we need the whole New Testament to understand the order of salvation. We must be careful not to create a theology on a text or two from the book of Acts, though these texts are, of course, very important. So with that, Peter begins, and this is our second point, repent. This, we can say, is first in our order of response. The gospel's proclaimed, we're cut to the heart, and then the word is repentance. Repentance is always accompanied by, never without, never without, faith. Now notice here, faith is not mentioned. But there are other places in Acts where repentance is omitted, and only faith is mentioned. And then there are places where they're both mentioned. So this makes my point about exercising some care. Whether it's mentioned or not, true faith is never without repentance. True repentance is never without faith. Okay, so let's talk about repentance since that's Peter's first word of reply to the what shall we do question. And the root meaning here is not merely sorrow or being sorrowful, but turning. Turning. Repentance is a radical turning from sin to God. You may not be aware of this, but our confessions, bless the Lord for this, have a whole chapter, chapter 15, of repentance unto life. We covered it all last Lenten season. That unpacks the doctrine of repentance. Here, Repentance entails not merely, you know, grief, but a complete change of mind about who Jesus Christ is. Right? About what they have done in their rejection of him. Right? What they are the most ferocious about, it turns out they are the most wrong about. And repentance requires that kind of turning. This is what Jesus preached, right? The very first words out of Jesus' public preaching ministry are, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The very first words out of John the Baptist's public preaching ministry is, as we heard in the gospel lesson, repent. It's always the first word. But, beloved, it's also always an ongoing, perpetual word in the Christian life. Calvin says the Christian life is a life of perpetual repentance. Perpetual repentance. It's lived in the mode of repentance. That's the mode we're in. So it's the first word. It's the ongoing word in Christian proclamation. Because the last days have arrived, because God has fixed a day in which he will judge the world, 
Repentance is the order of the day. It's the order of the age. And while it's necessary, it's not something we do. It's not a work. It is a gift. Peter commands repentance, knowing that it is also a gift. Here's what Peter will say in the very next chapter of this book. He will say this, God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first, that is to you Jews first, to bless you by turning, same root word, same, same idea, by turning every one of you from your wickedness. God's the turner when we repent. In Acts 5, Peter will say, God exalted him at the right hand to give Israel repentance. So the turning is something God does in us. The Christian life is not God apart from us. But neither is it God and us. It is God in us. And repentance, the very onset of the Christianity, of the Christian existence, demonstrates this, highlights it. God grants to the Gentiles repentance, Peter says in Acts 11. And Paul tells us, for example, that both faith and repentance are gifts of God's grace. So why is this relevant here? Well, because it means the Holy Spirit has to be mightily at work in anyone who truly repents. It is the Spirit that creates saving faith and repentance. What does that mean? Well, it means you can't read this text. Look, think of if you only had this text. You would think that the gift of the Spirit comes after baptism. But it means we can't read the text that way. Repent, Peter says, and be baptized, every one of you. So baptism, then, is the third point. Now, I'm going to, make, I'm going to state the obvious here. Because I realize in some cases it's not obvious. This is water baptism. Nobody on the planet knew of any other kind of baptism. Baptism is distinguished from the gift of the Spirit in this very text. So there's no baptism in the Spirit which does away with the need for water baptism. Remember when the Ethiopian eunuch asks about baptism and Philip He and Philip immediately get out of the chariot. They head for the water. Baptism means water. And notice also here in this text, we learn that the New Testament knows nothing of unbaptized believers. It is literally the first thing repentant people should do. Repent, be baptized. So if you believe in Jesus and you're not baptized, let me charge you in the words of Peter. Repent, and be baptized. Right? Baptized is, baptism is the outward public enactment of the inner act of repentance. Right? It's the outward public enactment of the inner act of repentance. So Peter calls them and us to repent and be baptized. Now think about this. These are Jews, members in the covenant. And he calls them to be baptized. And that's a provocative thing to do. I mean, they're already circumcised, for one thing. And 
they knew of baptism, a kind of washing with water, but it was for Gentiles. It was for proselytes, converts to Judaism. So there's a movement here, right, to this new covenant sign from circumcision to baptism. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. That's our fourth point. The name of Jesus is his divine authority, his divine attributes. And again, this is not something other than something at odds with or something different from baptism in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So we have to do a little bit of Trinitarian theology here. Because the name, the divine authority of Jesus Christ, is the same divine name and authority shared by the Father and the Son. By the Father and the Spirit, excuse me. We know this, for example, from Matthew 28, that famous passage called the Great Commission. The commission to baptize is given, and the word and the name there is singular. Right? It's not baptize them in the names, plural, of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Jesus does not say that. It's baptize them in the name, singular, of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So then baptizing in the name of Jesus and baptizing in the triune name are the same thing. To use Athanasian creed-like language, which maybe you're a little familiar with now, right? The Father possesses the name, the Son possesses the name, and the Spirit possesses the name. Yet there are not three names, there is but one name. Fifth, we are baptized for the forgiveness of sins. See, I told you, this is going fast, right? Anyway, we're baptized for the forgiveness of sins. This is the great promise of the new covenant, the central promise in in Jeremiah 31, the forgiveness of your sins, culminating, of course, in this bond of covenant communion where God says, I will be your God, you shall be my people. Now, we hold that baptism is a seal, an affirmation of the forgiveness of sins. It is not the direct cause of forgiveness. Again, if you only had this text, you might conclude that. Right? Peter himself, this same apostle in his first epistle, says, baptism now saves you. But then he immediately qualifies it with, not as water removing dirt from the body, meaning not the actual ritual. Right? What saves is not the ritual itself, but what the ritual signifies. What procures forgiveness is not baptism itself, but what baptism signifies, namely union with Jesus Christ, crucified and raised. That's what saves. How do we know this? Well, we know it, again, from reading the whole book and the whole New Testament. So, for example, in the next chapter, in Acts 3, Peter will say this. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins might be blotted out. So he just skips baptism there. In Acts 10, he says this. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Skips baptism again. Right? So we know baptism cannot simply be the cause of forgiveness. So 
What's helpful here, I think, is the Reformed understanding of the sacraments as signs and seals of the gospel. Baptism is not superfluous. It's a sign and a seal, an affirmation of the forgiveness of sins. And our confessions teach that the grace that is signified in baptism is really given by God to his elect in due time. So we're perfectly happy to say as a kind of shorthand, be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. But we realize it's a kind of shorthand. We mean, and we hold that Peter means, be baptized so that what is signified in baptism, washing and forgiveness through Christ, will be in due time given to you. We should be comfortable with this as Presbyterians because we recognize that the forgiveness of sins comes normally, not always, but normally, after the baptism of infants. And it comes normally, not always, before the baptism of adults. So if you're a Reformed Presbyterianism, you know that the forgiveness of sins is not tied directly in some sequential order to the rite of baptism. It could be before, it could be after. So that's baptism. That's forgiveness. Sixth, this is a point Peter doesn't explicitly raise, but I want to raise this point here. And I call this point the temple, because we'll see a lot about this in Acts. If the forgiveness of sins, think about what's happening here. If the forgiveness of sins, and as we shall see, the gift of the Spirit, can be mediated by the risen and exalted Christ, the Messiah, apart from the Jerusalem temple, and apart from the Sanhedrin, and apart from its hierarchy, and apart from its priests and its sacrifices, this means the temple's days are numbered. And a new temple of spirit-filled, blood-sprinkled believers has arrived. This is still in the background here, but it's right under the surface. All Jewish believers at this point, we should note. This is the church, the end-time temple predicted by the prophets, the temple seen descending out of heaven from God at the end of the book of Revelation. So we need to keep this in mind when we see ministry or worship in and around the temple in the book of Acts. This is a transitional period between 30 A.D. and 70 A.D. One temple is being formed. The other temple is becoming obsolete. And that's entailed in the very proclamation that Peter is saying. You can be forgiven. You can be washed. You can receive the gift of the Spirit through the risen and exalted Messiah. So seventh, then, the gift of the Spirit. The gift of the Spirit. And here's an aside, right? Using pouring as a mode of baptism highlights both the idea of cleansing or washing and the idea of the gift of the Spirit. The water in baptism, which does not signify a grave or dirt or a tomb, The water signifies the Holy Spirit from heaven, and pouring it signifies washing or cleansing for the forgiveness of sins and the reception from above of the Spirit himself. Now, we don't make a big deal about the mode, but nevertheless, I wanted to say a word about it. So again, this text that we're looking at does not mean, and in fact cannot mean, that one does not have the Spirit until one is baptized. 
Again, if you go to Acts 10, the order is reversed from what we see here. The Gentiles receive the Holy Spirit, and then Peter says, Can anyone withhold water from these who have received the Spirit? So baptism seals the gift of the Spirit. It doesn't automatically confer it. A lot of people are baptized who never have the Spirit. But all of God's chosen people who have saving faith in Christ, all of them are baptized in and and do receive the gift of the Spirit. After all, that's the promise of the new covenant. We heard it from Ezekiel. Ezekiel says, in the new covenant... They'll all be cleansed. They'll all be washed. They'll all be sprinkled. I will put my law within you. There'll be no situation when the new covenant comes to its full fruition where somebody is baptized and doesn't have the Holy Spirit of God and the law written in their hearts. So, here's another implication of this. There are not two classes of Christians, right? Normal Christians and second blessing spirit baptized Christians. There are not two classes of Christians. So, this charge, repent, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the Holy Spirit. That's the saving response to the gospel. That's Christian initiation. And as you can see, there's a lot of, there's a lot of divergent opinions and confusion about these things in the tradition. That's why it's important to clarify what we mean by every term here. And so in verse 39, if you look at verse 39, Peter gives the reason for his underlying summons to his Jewish audience. And this is the eighth point. It's called the promise. For the promise, he says, what's the promise here? Well, Jesus has already told us that they are to wait for the promise of the Father. The promise is the last day's gift of the Spirit the new covenant gift of forgiveness of sins spoken of by the prophets. That promise, right, is for you, you Jews and your children, he says. So this covenant continuity across generations remains in the new covenant. The promises belong to Abraham and his offspring. The promise in view here is for Jews gathered in Jerusalem and their children. And, Peter says, for all who are far off. Now, this will eventually include Gentiles, but this is first and foremost a reference to diaspora Jews. So Peter's saying this, you Jews in Jerusalem and your children, and those Jews who are far off in the scattering and their children, the promise is for you guys. And ultimately, he says... The text says, notice, the promises for everyone whom the Lord our God shall call to himself. So again, the covenant promise does not guarantee salvation. What is decisive is those whom the Lord our God calls to himself. So God powerfully, he effectively summons out of darkness and death, he sovereignly calls those whom he will save to himself And he is normally pleased to do this from the covenant community. The covenant is the seedbed or the pool from which God summons his elect. The promise is made to the covenant community. The promise is realized and made good ultimately only 
in those whom the Lord God calls to himself sovereignly. And by repenting, right, and by heeding Peter's call, they and we demonstrate that the promise is savingly for us, that we are among those whom the sovereign God calls to himself. In them, in those who repent, the promise of the covenant will be realized, the forgiveness of sins, the gift of the Spirit. Finally, verse 40, the exhortation. It's been a long sermon, this sermon in chapter 2, but we're reminded here that we have a condensed version of it. Notice the text says, with many other words. With many other words, Peter was, bore witness and he continued to exhort them. So Peter made more than three points. He makes a lot of points in this sermon. And he says, here's his, here's his sum of his exhortation. Be saved. Some translations say save yourself. It's probably be saved. It's probably passive. Be saved from this crooked generation. So to be delivered from the wrath to come, we must extricate ourselves. We must be extricated by the grace of God from the wickedness of our own age. So it's a summons to the the crowd to identify with the Messiah whom they crucified. And the believing remnant to identify with the believing remnant, the nucleus of a renewed Israel. So Peter has now, finally, drawn the first Christian sermon to a close. As we've said, he covered a lot of ground. From the life of Jesus, from the significance of the Spirit, to the gospel witnesses, to these grand promises of the prophets realized now. We have heard today the conditions which we happily embrace. In fact, it was a, a, a wonderful providence that if you look at the catechism question that we said today, it was about the conditions God requires for us in the covenant. And it says repent, faith and repentance unto life and the diligent use of all the means of grace. We've heard these conditions of the new covenant. Repentance and faith. Submission to the outward rite of baptism. Now again, it would be a mistake to read this text as, okay, well this is fine if you're a new convert. It is true, we're baptized only once, but we repent and we believe and we receive the forgiveness of sins. And we are renewed and drink the gift of the Spirit. And we remember our baptism across the whole of our life, moment by moment, day by day. The posture you were in in the moment of your conversion is a posture that should maintain and sustain us across the Christian life. We are always in the mode of repentance, in need of cleansing, in need of washing, of renewing our baptismal union with Jesus Christ. Which is to simply say that we don't merely begin, but we live by. We stand in this gospel. It's a word we must hear daily, right? Preach the gospel to yourself Every day. We never grow beyond the gospel. There's other things we attend to, of course. This text doesn't say everything that there is about the Christian life. But we never move beyond this text. We never put baptism, repentance, faith, forgiveness behind us. Heed, then, the apostolic gospel afresh. Repent. 
believe, receive forgiveness, be renewed in the gift of the Spirit, call upon the name of the Lord and be saved from our crooked and perverse generation. Amen.